invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Our Scripture reading is John eleven fifty five through 12, 26. Hear what God's Word has for us. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having the charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast heard that the crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, imagine a scene where countless people squeeze in together to listen to, to see a political hero. 
That may be a little easier to imagine before COVID, but go with me on this. They all, they all push in together, shoulder to shoulder, with great excitement in the air. They brought things to hold up and to wave. They have, they have special chants that they all know, and at just the right time, they shout these together. Some of them even wear special hats. There's all sorts of hope in this gathering. Hope that the individual that they're there to celebrate might make their life great. Hope that He can help them to reach their dreams. Hopes that He'll destroy their enemies, both those who are near and those who pose a foreign threat. Now, you may think I'm talking about a political rally of today, and that would be a fairly adequate description, but I'm not. I'm talking about a political rally that took place some 2,000 years ago. The one we think back on today, the one we call Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry. Now, I'm calling this a political rally not at all because that's how Jesus would have seen it, but because that's how the crowds saw it. And I think there's a warning in that for us because the vast majority of the people involved were religious people. They had a great nationalistic zeal. For the, for the vast majority of those who were there, they wanted their lives to be made great. It was all about them. It was all about a Messiah in their own image. And as they searched, and as they hoped, and as they prayed for a political Savior who would come and fortify their own kingdom, they actually missed the true Savior who came and died to make His people fit to be a part of His kingdom. So turn with me to John chapter 12. We're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 26, but I do want to start just refreshing the end of chapter 11 as it sets the background for where we're going. There in the text that I just read, John tells us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and that's our context for the passage we're looking at. This is the third and final Passover of Jesus' public ministry. Now, Passover is what's often referred to as a pilgrim feast, one of the three pilgrim feasts of the Jews, and it's called that because Jews from all over the known world were expected to make their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to set this, to celebrate this most important feast. And thus, think about this, in the providence of God, Jesus, the true Lamb of God, would give His life at a time when Jerusalem was literally bursting at the seams with people. Literally, at Passover, the city would swell multiple times its normal size. And John points that out. In fact, he tells us uh, that the city was already swelling. He says many from the country were going up to Jerusalem in order to purify themselves for the festival. So countless people are pushing their way into Jerusalem, and there's a buzz in the air. You see that there? There's a buzz about this particular Passover. For everywhere you went, people are looking for Jesus. Do you think he'll come? I think he'll come. I don't think he'll come. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees are saying, if he comes, we should report him. I think he'll stay out in the country. No, 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 I think he'll come. And, and this, this back and forth. And as we get ready to dig in on chapter 12, it, it's vital to know what happened just before because it looms large over the text. 
When we get to chapter 12, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. An absolutely astonishing miracle. And as a result, there was a renewed excitement about Jesus among the crowds. And the Jewish leaders had now doubled down on their efforts to put Jesus to death. So that's the setting of the text. That's why Jerusalem is buzzing with excitement. That's why in verse 57, we see that the chief priests and the Pharisees gave orders that if anyone knew where he was, to come and tell them because they were going to arrest him. And so what I want to do this morning is work through this text by way of looking at the five pictures that I think it gives us. Uh, The first and five are sort of the bookends of this of this passage. Uh, the, the fifth, we see Jesus call to die to self and live to him. And the first, then, we see in Mary a bit of a picture of that. The middle three, what I was almost going to call the cream of, in the Oreo, but I like Oreos, so maybe the, the tuna slathered in mayo. And if you like tuna, then this doesn't work for you. But the tuna slathered in mayo is the middle because these are ugly. These are lives characterized by self-centeredness. So let's start with Mary, what I'm calling a portrait of dying to self and living to Christ. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. There Jesus goes to Bethany six days before the Passover. He goes to the home of Lazarus, the man he just raised from the dead, and in the context of the narrative, John's wanting to highlight the coming death of Jesus, and what humble, sacrificial faith looks like. Thus, while Mary almost certainly anointed Jesus' head, like you see in Matthew and Mark, what what stuck out to John was the fact that she didn't stop there. She actually humbled herself, getting down on her hands and knees, and anointed his feet. You know, the narrative of Mary's worship spans only one verse, And yet it is absolutely astounding. In this one verse, we see a beautiful example of what it is to worship Christ. We see what it is to follow him, not just for what we can get out of the relationship, but because he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and because he is worthy of worship. In verse 3, Mary takes a 12-ounce jar of very expensive perfume made from the oil that was extracted from a nard plant that grew only in India. So this was rare stuff. This would not have been sitting around the home of every Israelite. It was imported from India, and there was no Amazon Prime India rendition or Jerusalem edition at that point. This stuff was rare, and thus this was costly. And John wants to show us just how costly. He makes clear both the quality of the perfume, telling us that it was pure. That means it wasn't diluted. A lot of times with a perfume, they would dilute it, and they could get more out of, you know, the actual product. But not this. This was pure. And and he highlights the, the quantity, which was very large. So, again, Mary's action here was very costly to her. John goes out of his way to emphasize just how great it was. Notice that Judas points out that the perfume was so valuable that it should have been sold for a small fortune, 300 
denarii. Now, Matthew 20 tells us that a denarius was a day's wage, which helps us to see what Mary did, right? Given that the Jews didn't work on the Sabbath and they didn't work the weeks of the festivals, Mary anointed her king's feet with a year's wages. What a glorious, beautiful picture of a giving heart. Mary took what was perhaps the most precious thing she had, and she spent it all on Jesus. She anoints Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume, only wishing that she had more to give to her Lord and King. There's great humility in this act of worship as well. For, for, for Mary to do what she did was a massive humbling of self. Here, she takes on the lowest possible slave in the first century to deal with feet was something that only was done by the lowest slave in the house. Moreover, not only does she put herself in that humble position, she takes down her own hair and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, for some of the ladies, as much as you think, man, I'm not sure I'd do that It would have been even more the case in the first century. People weren't walking around with nice shoes and socks. They were walking around dirt roads in sandals, so their feet were often just quite filthy. What's more, in that culture, it would have been considered by many to be inappropriate for a woman to take her hair down. They, they They would wear their hair piled up, and to take it down was often thought of as a sign of loose morals. But notice Mary didn't give a rip what other people thought. She was too busy worshiping her king. She loved Jesus, and she could care less what others thought about her. And thus, she stands before us as a beautiful example of selfless servanthood, following Jesus out of love for Jesus, not for what she can get out of it. That leads to the next picture, the first of the three ugly, self-centered ones, Here we see that Judas is in direct contradistinction to Mary. He was in it for what he could get out of it. And this is evident in his response and what John tells us about him. Mary worships her king by lavishing great amounts of expensive perfume on him. And don't miss Judas' self-righteous response. Think about it. She worships. He grumbles about her. Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, John tells us he didn't give a rip about the poor. He was actually a thief in it for what he could get out of it. And since he had the charge of the money bags, he could have used some of the cash or at least pocketed some of it if if Mary had sold it and put it in their coffers. See, this is insidious. Don't, Don't miss that Judas' desire, what he wanted here, was to be viewed by other people as some good and pious man. Come on, Mary. We want to be good stewards, don't we? Geez, Mary, that extravagance could be tempered a bit, couldn't it? I mean, come on. Boy, the dangers of self-righteousness abound, don't they? You know, we can be up to our eyeballs and our own sin, and yet try to make ourselves look good by bringing others down. Mary worships Jesus. Judas rebukes Mary. And then Jesus rebukes Judas. 
Jesus affirms that what Mary did was good. Sometimes extravagance is really good. And here we see that Jesus loves extravagant worship, extravagant giving, extravagant service to the king. She had obviously saved this bottle of expensive, pure nard for something important in the providence of God for the death of the Lord Jesus. Oh, she obviously didn't understand that at the time, but in humble worship, she demonstrates for us a beautiful picture of selfless devotion to King Jesus, and Jesus praises her for it. He praises Mary because of her actions. He rebukes Judas because of both his statement and his actions, and they showed that he was in it for himself, which leads to our next portrait, the crowd, who gets excited about Jesus because of their own self-centered political hopes. And you see this sort of working its way out in verses 9 through 19. In verse 9, John tells us that when the large crowd learned that Jesus was in Bethany, they came a-running, right? Not just to see Jesus, we're told, but to get a glimpse of Lazarus. They want to catch a glimpse of the amazing. And at one level, it's totally understandable, isn't it? I mean, when's the last time you have seen somebody who has been dead in the grave for four days and is walking around? So this would have been kind of cool. But sadly, their motives were not to see Lazarus and worship the one who healed him. No, they were more self-centered, which is clear as you go on in verses 12 through 16. There we see that the crowd wasn't looking for a suffering servant. They were temporarily excited about Jesus as they thought he just might be a conquering king. And keep in mind, Jesus had just done this amazing miracle that couldn't be denied. And, and, and word's gotten out that he's, he's coming into Jerusalem. And so the people are excited. They've been waiting for a new king. There's messianic expectation for quite a while leading up to this. They've been waiting for a new King David, a new King Solomon, who would come and rule the world in power. They were waiting for a king who would defeat the Romans and, can I say it, make Jerusalem great again. A king that would rule the known world and give the Jews personal peace and prosperity that had not been seen since the great King David and King Solomon. And to their thinking, Jesus fit the bill. I mean, come on. This guy could heal the sick, feed the multitudes, give sight to the blind, raise the dead. He had to be the one, right? So they went running out, and they welcomed him, waving their palm branches, which were originally associated with the Feast of Booths, but by this time had become sort of a national symbol of victory. And perhaps here they were celebrating their future victorious king who was coming into the city. They not only waved their palm branches or their lulabs, but they also quoted from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now the word Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew word used in Psalm 25, of Psalm 118 that literally means give salvation now, though by this time it was probably had become just a word of praise or acclamation. 
They shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which was no doubt messianic, as demonstrated by the next statement, even the king of Israel. So again, the crowd, the Jewish crowd, ran out to welcome Jesus into the city as their conquering political king. But their desires were totally self-centered. And the reality is they completely missed Jesus for who he really was and what he came for. They were celebrating a Messiah, a physical Savior, who would save Jerusalem from their tyranny under Rome by being a conquering earthly king. But Jesus was a spiritual Savior, coming to save his people from tyranny, yes. But Jesus was actually coming to save them from the tyranny of their own sin. And the crowds missed this. They missed that Jesus' coming fulfilled Zechariah 9. Even the disciples missed this. John tells us it was only after the resurrection that the disciples looked back and said, ah, look what he did. Jesus came into Jerusalem as a king, no doubt about it, King Jesus. But let's be clear. He didn't come as the kind of king they were waiting for. He didn't come as the kind of king many American Christians are looking for. No, see, our, our sinful human nature wants a political king who will give us everything we want. We want a political king who will help us achieve our goals, to help us build our kingdom, who would make our lives better. Consider some of the greatest hopes and dreams of so many within the church today. See, like so many American Christians, this Jewish crowd wasn't interested in a spiritual king, a suffering servant who did not come to save Jerusalem physically, but would in fact call his people to take up their cross and follow him in a life of suffering, living ultimately for the life to come. Perhaps this is why so many in the crowd would cry, Hosanna, on Sunday, and by Friday, crucify, crucify. Oh, how fickle we can be when we don't get what we want. John tells us in verse 18 that the very reason they went after Jesus was because they heard that he had raised Lazarus, or as John puts it more specifically, because he heard that they had done this, that he had done this sign, which if you know John's gospel, you know is never a good thing. See, if you, if you read John's gospel, you, you, you know that he creates this category that theologians refer to as spurious faith or false faith, this sign-centered faith. And that's what's going on with the crowd. They had gone after Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They had gone after Jesus because he was a miracle worker. But they never looked beyond the miracle to the one that the miracles were validating. And they wanted a political savior, but were none too interested in a spiritual savior. No, their quest to see Jesus stemmed from self-love. Their purposes were very self-serving, which leads us right to the Jewish leaders, for they too were guided by self-love. We see their portrait in 
verses 10 and 11, and then down in verse 19, what I'm calling a portrait of living for one's own personal kingdom. Remember, we already saw in verse 9 that the large crowd was running out to Bethany, not only to see Jesus, but also Lazarus, and thus the chief priests make plans not only now to kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus precisely because people are going away and, quote-unquote, believing in Jesus. Or again, down in verse 19, on the heels of Jesus' triumphal entry, the Pharisees say, we're gaining nothing. You can hear the desperation. We're gaining nothing. The whole world's going after him. If, if we would have been reading all the way through the Gospel of John, which again, is how biblical books are made to be read, you would hit where we are right now with the end of chapter 11, super fresh in your mind, and there you would have remembered that after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they come together, they have this little council, and one of them says, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and the Romans are going to come, and they're going to take away both our place and our nation. I hope you see it. This is dripping with self-love. They missed their Savior, the one their scriptures pointed to, at least due in part to their insatiable desire to protect their own kingdom. Never mind the fact that Jesus was the one the entire Old Testament was pointing to, just as he claimed, just as his miracles demonstrated. The Jewish leaders would have none of it. See, they were in what they considered to be a pretty sweet spot. They had a pretty comfortable life. They were living the dream. Seriously, they had a good thing going. And when we have a good thing going, how dare anyone get in the way of it, even God. The Sadducees were actually in bed with Rome. And if they could keep the crowds, the Jewish crowds, in line, Rome was thrilled with them. Rome didn't care at all about the Jews, the Messiah, or their temple. All they wanted was to keep the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And thus, the Sadducees, if they started to lose control of the crowds, the Jewish people, the Romans would come in, obliterate the Jews, destroy the temple, just wipe them out. And here John shows us, this is why the Jewish leaders are so infuriated at Jesus' popularity. This is why they want this guy dead. Jesus was getting in the way of their kingdom of self. They had a particular way of life, and they would not stand by and let anyone, including the God-man, get in their way. Which leads to Jesus. Specifically, it leads to Jesus' call to die to that. To die to living for our own kingdom and to live for his. In verses 20 through 24, we see both the ground of and the call to this Christ-centered living. Look back at the text. In verse 19, the Pharisees assert with great, aspir- with great exasperation, the whole world's gone after him. And there they spoke better than they knew, as John points out in verse 20. Here in verse 20, we see the fulfillment of passages like John 10, where Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I'm going to go get them and bring them in also. They're going to listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
See, here the Greeks or the Gentiles come to see Jesus demonstrating in this gospel that indeed the whole world has gone after Jesus. And for Jesus, this seems to be a trigger. He's now clear his time has come. He's been rejected by most of his own, like he said he would. And now the one who the Old Testament said would be a light to the Gentiles is now being sought out, yes, by the Gentiles. And thus, after repeatedly saying in the first 11 chapters, my hour is not yet come, my time is not yet here, in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In the Gospel of John, Jesus being glorified is always getting at the cross event, his death, burial, and resurrection, and now is the time. And he helps us understand why in verse 24 with an illustration of a grain of wheat. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, for Jesus to accomplish his mission of saving his sheep made up from both Jews and Gentiles, he had to lay down his life. If the grain of wheat doesn't die and go into the tomb, it remains alone. But if it dies and if it goes into the tomb, it's going to rise and bear much fruit. And this is precisely why Jesus came. This is the heart of God's plan of redemption. This is the heart of God's glorious rescue mission. Jesus' substitutionary death and his death-conquering resurrection. Jesus came as the suffering servant, the true king of the Jews, the savior of the world, and he would lay down his life for his sheep, and in so doing, he would indeed bear much fruit. As his sheep for which he died from both Jew and Gentile descent would come to saving faith and live for him. And I'm going to pause there. You might be here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ. And I want to plead with you that you need Jesus. Scriptures are clear. Every single one of us have rebelled against God and thus every single one of us deserve his judgment. But Jesus came to die. He came to be our substitute, to take our place in the judgment we deserved. And so, friend, I would plead with you, trust Christ. Look to Jesus, even today. Jesus came to lay down his life for sinners like us. He came to die and thus bear much fruit. And now, here in the text, he turns and he calls us to die. Look at it. He calls us to die to self and live for him. And in so doing, he's helping us to see what real saving faith looks like. He says, whoever loses his life, whoever, I'm sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for all eternity. Now, the point there is really pretty simple to understand, yet it's also very, very difficult, and all too frequently missed in the church today. The one who loves his own life, in other words, the one who demands to keep his life the way it was before Jesus, the one who prizes his own life more than living for Christ, Jesus says will lose it for all eternity. He will find himself to be the one Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 
when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Friends, this is a sobering teaching of the Lord Jesus. It's a consistent teaching in the Gospel of John. Jesus says things like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments over and over again. The New Testament teaches us that how we live demonstrates what we really believe. And the one who loves his own life more than Christ as demonstrated by rejecting Christ's teaching and insisting that we should still be able to live according to the world's standards, will lose his life for all eternity. On the other hand, the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. And the point here is one of priority. Jesus is not calling his people to move from self-love to self-hate, okay? Be clear on that. That would be a rejection of the Imago Dei, God's creation of man in his own image. No, this is a call to die to self-centeredness and to live to Christ-centeredness. This is not a call to think less of yourself. It's a call to think of yourself less. Christ calls us to die to self-love, self-infatuation, self-centeredness, and to live a Christ-centered life. And this is seen when we so value Jesus and his kingdom that we prioritize living for him and his kingdom over building our own. Don't miss this. Jesus is telling us here that such a life Such a radical change, something that's not natural. Remember, earlier in John, he would have said that you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom, so that's that's supernatural. And, and, And he's telling us that this being born again, this life that flows from that, demonstrates that we have eternal life. Think about it. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that only makes sense if living is really Christ. If living is all about me and my kingdom, then in death I lose everything I'm living for. But if living is truly about Christ, then if I die, I gain what I've been living for. And this is the one who sees Jesus like the parable he told in Matthew 13, that treasure hidden in a field. Here we rightly see Jesus and who He is and what He's done for sinners like us is so amazing and so glorious that everything else pales in comparison. We're willing to get rid of anything in order to truly possess that one treasure. That's losing your life for Christ. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Living for Him like we saw with Mary who took that costly bottle of perfume and anointed her Savior's feet with her prized possession. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling us to daily turn from self-centeredness. Let's be clear, that never goes away, right? This is a battle, this is a fight, this isn't you're born again and it just, you're, you've got it figured out. But he's calling us to daily turn from self-centeredness, and run as hard as we can each and every day toward Christ-centeredness. And Jesus goes on in the last verse asserting that 
those who are truly His will follow in this way and will be honored by His Father. Again, this is a common teaching in the New Testament. Elsewhere, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Church, we can't earn our salvation. It's nothing we could ever pay for. But it will cost us everything. Because when Christ calls a man or a woman, he calls us to come and to die. He calls us to lay down our lives, to live for his kingdom. He calls us to live today for the honor that God the Father will give on the last day more than living for what we might accomplish today. And Jesus reminds us of this truth. He says, if anyone does in fact serve me, if anyone does in fact hate his own life in comparison to living for me, for those who live seeing me and my kingdom as that treasure hidden in a field, he says, God the Father will honor you. Now that's talking about on the last day. Right? So notice what this is. This is helpful. It's important. This is a call to us to reorient our north star, to reorient our focal point. Our focal point is not here in our kingdom. Our focal point is Christ and his kingdom. We live today, Jesus is saying, to hear, well done my good and faithful servant. And so may God give us the grace to grow in doing that, to looking to Christ, to focusing on Him, His kingdom, with an eternal perspective. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We need reminders like this. Lord, I confess it is all too easy, all too often to go back to the work of building my own kingdom. And I pray that you would help me and my brothers and sisters put that to death, that you would grow us in having eyes for Christ and his kingdom, and that we would run hard after that for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.